is there a way that somebody could actually shut somebody down to the conversation because of the knowledge they have or the perspective that they have or they have a they have a point of view on this that's stronger than the other people you you're going into the allyship and accomplice world now you know and you're going when you intellectualize the issue of race and culture and don't bring humanity into it that is a problem you know everyone can read a book you know everyone could could get articles about um, culture and race and feel as though they have now become an authority on the issue. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Colorado Judicial Department. The Colorado Judicial Department assumes no responsibility or liability for any error or omission in the content of this podcast. Information provided in this podcast should not be considered to be legal advice and is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness or accuracy. Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collabo Babble. Sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab or Babble, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collab or Babble, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The stars of today's podcast are Dr. Courtney Russell and Emily Brocker, hosts of the Humanized podcast, Stories from the Heart about Social Justice. I am your Collab Babble host. Bill DeLisio, Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. On today's episode, we will be talking about the process of having very honest and raw conversations about race. And just to give everybody in the audience that's listening a background, the description of the Humanized podcast is, it's easy to say you believe in the social justice, but engaging in honest conversations about race can be deeply uncomfortable vulnerable, messy, and complex. Join co-hosts Courtney Russell, social entrepreneur, activist, and doctor, and Emily Brocker, keynote speaker and mom, as they take on the kind of interracial dialogue needed to disrupt the current social order and create equity. Good morning, Courtney. Good morning, Emily. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yo, what's good? Good morning. Good morning. I just want to let the audience know um, you came to my attention through my partner, Vani. She was talking with Emily and um, we learned about your podcast, Humanize. And I had the opportunity, we took a little road trip for Valentine's Day and I had the opportunity. (laughs) We spent four or five of those hours driving, listening to your podcast. And it was very engaging, very interesting. I think you had raw conversations, right? And, And so feel free to have those raw conversations during this interview with me today. But before I ask my signature question of the podcast, I just want to know what 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 was it that you decided, hey, we're going to do a podcast? Was this something you were already working on in other areas or did you just decide, hey, let's give it a shot? Good question. You want to take that, Courtney? Um, wow. To be honest, we were both just trying to figure out how best to collaborate. And before COVID hit, we were going to start talking about um, ways to push DEI and trainings of sort um, in Boulder and Colorado area. Uh, but when COVID hit, we quickly saw, obviously, we couldn't be in person and none of that stuff. 
And so it was, the choice was either we kind of laid to the side really quick or we continue to push, you know? Um, and he came to me and, and asked, what's going on? I said, I don't have a choice about this work. I don't have the luxury of putting it to the back burner. Um, and, and so I'm going to do it. Even I got to figure out a way, I got to use whatever vehicle I can, but I'm going to keep pushing it. And she had a brilliant idea, honestly, to let's, let's do a podcast. Um, and so me just being who I am, I said, oh, I've never done a podcast, but why can't I do it too? You know, so we just jumped in and human eyes is, is our baby and, we, and we're here now. That's how, in short, how it came. So it's one of those adjustments to COVID and all of us have been doing that and jumping online and having to adapt to it. So um, did you, did you have, I'm, I'm curious, Emily, just, did you have any technical background in recording or editing? Oh goodness. No, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. One of my first things was like, if we're doing this, we're having someone else edit it. Just knowing my, like I can get really kind of in the weeds with these type of things. I've done a little bit of editing for videos that I have and I, it takes so long. So yeah, we just kind of started from scratch and brought a couple people in to help us kind of conceptualize how to, how to stay on topic. That was our big challenge at first. We have a bunch of episodes we didn't release that were just kind of like meandering, but it, Courtney and I, I mean, this was, this is kind of like us getting to know each other. Season one is us kind of just getting into it because we hadn't worked together before. So it was, uh, yeah, a process that unfolded and definitely still learning a lot, but um, he and I are both public speakers. So this is a good format for us um, okay. as opposed to writing, you know, yeah. blogs and mm -hmm. that type of thing. Yeah. You had an important point of view you wanted to share. You want to try to shift the culture, change the culture. And so, Hey, podcast is a great way to do that. So I'm happy to have. Yeah. You. Well, yeah. my signature question is what does beyond the collabo babble mean to you? And Emily, why don't you start with that? Well, I think it's such a clever, a clever word, like a clever phrase. I don't know when I, when I hear that, Oh, I think it's, especially in U S culture. I spent a lot of time abroad. There's a lot of this, um, very superficial conversation that goes on for, for people. And it's an, it's a cultural norm, right? When you say to someone like, how you doing? It's kind of like inappropriate to say, oh, well, my back really hurts. And you know, my da -da -da -da. like, you're supposed to say like, oh, okay, it's okay. Things are good. It's instead of saying hello. And, um, if people can just kind of get stuck there a lot and I'm personally not really interested in that. Like I, like even like looking at, you know, what we're going to explore today and thinking about that, like, there's a part of me that's just like, Oh yes. Like honest conversations. Like that's, that's what I want to get you. You're always going to find me like in a corner at a, a cocktail party in times where we can have cocktail parties, like really like having a, an engaged conversation with someone rather than floating around. Um, so that's what it means to me. Wonderful. And uh, Courtney, how about you? With regards to social justice, it really enrages me how performative it can be at times and how um, individuals can spectate, you know, lives are being lost. And as a doctor, you're trained to do no harm. Um, and even though I'm no longer practicing or I'm not in the hospital, I feel as though it's a heightened sense of urgency. And so a, a conversation 
should always extend and push thought towards action. And so just this, this venues, this vehicle, like I said, is a powerful beginning um, with hopes to create um, action steps towards change. All right. Thank you both. Um, so Courtney, why don't we go with you? Tell us a little bit about your journey to the work you're doing. You said you're a doctor, um, but you're not practicing medicine currently. Um, you're a social entrepreneur working on social justice, but tell us your journey and, and sort of give a, the audience a sense about who you are. Man, I don't know if you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Which point in time will you begin with today? <laughs> this is a, this is a legal matter, so you know I'm, I'm kind of hush mouth, you know, because I always. Yo, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously, I um, I started a very stereotypical life, you know, um, growing up in poverty and and being the son of an immigrant, and very proud. I was very racist, misogynistic, um, and ignorant, you know, and I thought it was all about me and very entitled. And I literally had to. Um, Every day is a struggle, you know, every day there's a chance you lose your life. Um, and I fell almost ass backwards into medicine via my, with my mom's um, blessing, you know, and she um, it's always said, you can do more than this. You know, I've always felt like I can do more than whatever I was doing. And so with the, the push of my father, with the love of my mother, I um, quickly start to outgrow a community that was driving me towards a stereotypical life, whether death or jail, you know? And so I, um, I fell in love with medicine first day, you know? Um, and because it's true, you know, but I always, even in that truth, I felt like I had to be bigger than that system. Um, I didn't know what that looked like back then. You know, I felt as though I just wanted to be the greatest doctor in a white coat. Then when the system started to, to show themselves to me, I felt like I don't even want to be in a white coat. I want to be the system. I want to create the change that's needed for individuals that look like me or individuals that come from where I come from or just marginalized or at-risk populations at large across the country. And, and so I started speaking and met my business partner. And one thing led to another. And we created two companies that really focus on creating um, change and eradicating poverty by addressing systemic um, faults and failures in our system and creating options for individuals who are at risk. So right. that would ensure my journey. Appreciate that. And Emily, how about you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, starting, starting way back in time, I, I was raised in the Northeast um, and did it, you know, from that perspective, a, a very, um, followed the, <laughs> followed the road that was laid ahead of me, private school, boarding school, Ivy league school, master's degree, um, kind of just very, um, I don't know, I would say a very typical Northeast white upbringing, um, you know, lots, lots of, um, up in the Northeast, people tend to not really want to talk about things, um, very puritanical kind of values. So that's, that's what I was raised in. Um, and then a big part of my life throughout that time too, was, um, traveling and going abroad and spent a lot of time in, in different countries. I've been to like 30 countries and lived in 11. Um, and so through that time, um, in doing work in international development, I became really interested in, uh, cross-cultural communication. 
and really started looking at, you know, national cultural level differences and how, um, you know, tools and, and concepts and trainings that can help people cl- collaborate better across differences and build trust. Um, and along that journey, it kind of, um, as I was in different classes and in different countries, I was just kind of slowly, um, realizing that my positionality as a white woman, it, when it came to communication, I, I was seeing really different things than other people were experiencing specifically people who are traditionally marginalized in whatever context and society that was in. And it was pretty uncomfortable at first. Like I was, uh, you know, it was kind of like around time of grad school. Like, so in my early thirties that it was kind of starting to tune into this and yeah, there was just this like discomfort in, in classes or dialogues of like, why am I, why am I seeing things differently than people who, you know, they're voicing these experiences from a marginalized perspective. And it just, it's super uncomfortable. And I, through those contexts, I was able to stay with it enough to be like, wow, when I sit through that discomfort, I get to truth and truth feels good. And that is like basically constantly drawing me into this conversation. And so as I kind of settled in, I'm in Boulder, as I settled here and build out my training and keynote company, Refresh Communication, where I basically work with nonprofits on culturally competent outreach. And I work with corporate groups on how to build psychological safety. Um, I kind of naturally had like tuned more and more into race in the U.S. and into these contexts. And it found, I guess, you know, in that process found like, you know, I can in some ways, like help people along who are really resistant to specifically like more white conservative people who are really resistant to talking about race and have a lot of like, I would say like baggage coming into the conversation. Um, I can kind of, kind of pull them along a little bit. Um, and yeah. And so in terms of how that's just become like increasingly my focus and increasingly kind of this love and fascination for this, this relationship of discomfort and truth. And I just feel really committed to continuing to see more truths and trying to be myself more human. And I realized the ways in which my, my conditioning around white supremacy has cut me off from, you know, feeling true empathy for a lot of people, because it's like, I've been taught to be distant and I, I don't, I, don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> I refuse to do that anymore, but I have a long, long, long road of, of unlearning a lot of things. Um, but it constantly leads me towards truth. So. Very good. Thank you. Now you said you're in Boulder, Courtney, where, where are you, where are you residing these, these days? I, I, I feel like I, on one of your podcasts, it sounded like the two of you met in Colorado, but I think I'm not, I wasn't clear. Do you live in Colorado or do yeah, you I have a, where are you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. Um, <laughs> I have a place in Atlanta and I work if I'm between Denver and Atlanta and Estes, you know, and so I live currently now in Estes Park and that's where I am right now. I work at a school for at-risk youth and I do a lot of entrepreneurial um, talk um, and kind of engagement outside of the classroom with at risk youth here in um, Estes. Okay. And that's where you guys met at the school? Um, no, no, we met 
in Boulder. Okay. All right. So, and that's yeah, sort of through just a, through a friend of ours who was like, you guys got to meet. And, okay. um, he was originally, we were originally going to do some unconscious bias training, public trainings in Boulder. And then he took a step away when COVID hit and we started talking about this podcast. And so that's how it was. But yeah, it was basically, we were, we were set up, okay. <laughs> we were professionally set up of like, you guys have something. And then we also kind of realized we both needed each other in this work. You know, I'm, I'm struck by, we had a guest on, um, so season two, we were bringing in guests and it's, it's really fun. We had a guest on just talking about how Martin Luther, Martin Luther King was saying, you know, we're inextricably linked and woven together, um, the, the white and black population in the U S and I feel like Courtney and I are finding like, we are, we're needing each other pieces that each other have in the, in this process and in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I picked up on your interaction with one another really did lead to interesting conversations that maybe wouldn't have ended up in the same place if it was one person talking, uh, themselves Mm -hmm. or just talking with guests. So, I, I, I encourage the audience to check out Humanize on the, any podcast uh, app, right? Your favorite podcast app, you'll find Humanize. Um, mm-hmm. But let's, let's, let's go a little bit into the episode that we're going to talk about here today. So we want to talk about having very honest and raw conversations about race at work, taking personal risks, um, taking correction, using humor, um, and I believe in my own experience in this past year, uh, in the workplace, we've started to have many more conversations like this in our court services division, our division director. This was something that was important to her before George Floyd's murder. But after that, we really did start to have regular communications around the topic of race, racism. And um, I, think, I think a lot of folks wanted to go to action, kind of to Courtney's point, and didn't want to um, just talk about it. And other folks were kind of learning, well, how do we talk about this? And people went on self-study and started to do things to um, inform themselves and educate themselves. But it, it definitely seems to be an area that um, we need to build some more repetitions in so we can become more effective at these conversations. So to get started, uh, let's just talk about some definitions. Uh, racism, prejudice, white supremacy, anti-blackness. I think these are four sort of concepts that are important to have in this conversation. And so I'll just let one of you start and then, and then you guys can just, um, the next person can kind of talk about, talk about it as well, but let's start with racism and prejudice and then white, 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 white supremacy and anti-blackness. Courtney, I feel like you've been teaching me about the differences. So I'm gonna say it punt it to you. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um <clears throat> we use racism like um as a as a blanket term when to me it should be a term that denotes a system. You know, a system is racist, a person is prejudiced. You know, a system is put in place for the benefit of a person. That prejudice make them um, or allow them to perpetuate that racist system or keep that racist system alive, you know. And so, the argument is, and people of color be racist, you know, and because the power is not created for people of color, you know. And so, <clears throat> I like to think about it as education system inherently is racist. Healthcare is racist. 
mass incarceration is racist. And um, individuals that benefit from the systems have prejudices and stereotypes that perpetuate and uplift and keep that racist system intact. And so that's, that's th that to me is the beginning of that definition and that beginning of that conversation. Emily, anything you want to add to that? Um, I would just say something that Courtney said before is that you, and he, he kind of touched on this, like, um, if you don't have power, you can't be racist according to the, those, the definitions of that. That's why this idea of reverse racism isn't really, it's a, I don't know. It's just a, a made up phrase, basically. It, so you have to have power. Um, so wait, Courtney, would you say you have to have power to be prejudiced? No, everyone can be prejudiced. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, black people are prejudiced against people of color. People of color are prejudiced against um, white people. White people are prejudiced against white people. Right. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a, a lot of times it comes back to class too, you know, and just in the U.S., you know, this construct of race is, is a dominant thing, but in other countries, it's more about um, class and where you come from, who your family is, what's your money looking like, you know? And so I think that's mm. the invention of race was, was made and kept alive here in, um, in America. So it's really coming down to a couple of factors. If I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, we're talking about power. It's at, at its center of it is where does the power reside and what were systems, how were systems designed with the, the intention of certain groups of people having power? And you're talking a little bit about castes, maybe the caste system. I read that book, I uh, listened to that book over the summer and mm. um, her argument was that America is a caste system. And she went through a pretty good analysis of comparing the United States to Nazi Germany and the caste system in India. And it was a quite compelling mm -hmm. argument. And part of her, uh, I think part of her argument was um, when we talk about race or racism, we can kind of get into these arguments with one another. Um, and the people in the dominant caste or the ruling caste kind of like us having these arguments and, and, and disagreements mm -hmm. with one another, because it takes, Right, it takes the 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 focus off of them and uh, and the yeah. top of the cast, and so I, she was just reframing it so that we could have conversations differently. And I've heard a few folks uh, recently start to talk about cast. So is that what you're kind of talking about there? Um, when you when you talk about where's your money at? I mean, there's a certain level of of folks who socioeconomically are at the bottom. Um, so in some societies, they might look at that more. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, definitely. Um, systems are in place to keep the rich rich and make it almost impossible for vertical um, growth um, financially, especially for at-risk youth. I mean, at-risk populations. And so, so a lot of times individuals, it, it's less about the color of your skin and, and it's more about the inability that the ability, it, it, how can I say this? The in excess ability of individuals to get a good education, to get quality health care, to get um, housing, to um, be input into the, the school to prison pipeline. You know, those are systems that are methodically in place to keep a ruling class ruling. You know, the psychology of creating a slave was a real thing. You know, slavery was a very brilliant construct that is still um, in existence today. 
you know, um, and so they didn't only enslave our bodies, they didn't they enslaved individuals' minds. Because once you have someone's mind, that's why individuals couldn't read. They they would kill you if you learn how to read, because now you start to to think outside of your reality and you become creative and now you begin you become hopeful. And there's nothing worse than a hopeful person because with hope that can see and, and give you the power to create from hope. You know, and so hope is like the soil that gives you the the everything you need. So you can find the water for your soil just because you had the hope. That the foundation is always hope. And then you start to pull at certain strings until something works. And then you start to climb out of no matter whatever situation you're in via hope. Hope has to be the foundation of that. And so and that's that's the answer to that. And do you sometimes do you sometimes encounter folks who will point to the socioeconomic so we can point to black folks who are doing well, maybe financially? And so people say there's not racism. Look, at there's people who are making money. And so anybody who wants to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever, it's fine. America is everybody has the same opportunity. Do you do you see that that argument made or that conversation occur in some of the workshops or sessions that you guys do when you when you're working with people all the time, you know, um, know your role, be appreciative that you are allowed to be here in this room. You know, it's very, it's, it's very condescending. It's very, um, prejudiced, you know, and a lot of times, I mean, the we have the black president so we can no longer be racist in this country. If you look at the systems, uh, even when a person is, is rich and he is in, at a different socioeconomic um, class and he's a person, he or she is a person of color, there is still limitations and they are always known that, you know, you are, you, you do have money now, but understand that you are who you are. And then they, and, and individuals show you certain times, look, relax, Oprah, a billionaire, you know, there's many examples. She's a billionaire. It's not, I mean, legit. And she was profiled and, and walked around the store as if she needed, she need like money is not a thing for her, you know? And so, there are like Barack Obama, let's go back to the presidency, you know, from the moment he was in, the most powerful man in the world. I mean, we know the struggles that he had, you know? And so for individuals to say, because of these outliers, these people placed in positions of wealth and power, there is no more racism, there's no more um, prejudice. You're, you're blind, you're, you're, you're being ignorant to the truth. And that's what is the first problem with um, upholding um, the supremacist um, and white supremacist um, culture that we have here in America by, by with the blinders that we have. Yeah, it seems like there, <clears throat> there are really not many other places where people get so convinced of an argument by the anomaly, you know, by the exception, you, like, you, like with COVID right now. Oh, I know one person who has no symptoms. So, everyone's not going to have symptoms. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's just a, you see a lot of grasping at straws. Um, I feel like in the, to, to reinforce white supremacy and to protect that system. I don't think people intend to, I don't think people even know what they're doing and that those people include me. I mean, like it shows up for me. Um, but, uh, it just comes out and then it gets normalized this argument that the rhetoric around, Oh, but we're in a post-racial society. You know, that was a big one when I, I was teaching online when 
Barack was in office and a lot of my intercultural students would say, oh, we're in a post-racial society. I don't think people say that anymore. Um, but that was a little chapter we lived through. <laughs> so, Emily, um, you had, I, I recall on one of your podcasts, you were talking about one of your friends, one of your white friends, um, who I think it sounded like this person. This person, you said that we're all racist, I think is how you put put it in the conversation with this person. I don't think you called this right. person racist <laughs> their face, but but just recognizing that we're all we're all racist in a way. And this person was very offended. It was a very offensive thing to say. And it also, you know, sometimes it looks like if someone is labeled that it's 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 a hard one to come back from. But can you just mm-hmm. explain the that conversation that you talked about where, you know, recognizing racism exists is one thing, but understanding that you may be racist and upholding a racist system and why that's something for us to reflect on as white people. Yeah. And I, you know, so it was this conversation where we're talking about race and talking about my work. And I was, I was saying, you know, I don't know if it's the right term anymore. Now talking with (laughs) Courtney, maybe the right term is to say we're all prejudiced. Um, but I, in some ways I feel like it's an important term to get used to, um, there's something's happened in our culture. I think it's, um, I, it's a clever, clever thing that happened basically where being called racist is now conflated with being called a bad person. And that is obviously going to be super triggering for anyone. No one wants no one that I've ever met wants to be a bad person. Um, and so, by conflating the two, you've shut down the conversation. And I say you as in like society, culture, the history of however that happened. Um, And I think it's an important thing for people. Like, so my own process of, of working through, um, you know, different workshops and, and working through the white supremacy and me book has made it super clear to me that I have internalized white supremacy um, beginning with, you know, the ways in which in grade school, white was just considered normal. And then you have things that are not normal, not like that. That was my mindset of like this, you know, and I can remember about my culture, like, wow, we have such a boring culture. Everything is normal here. The way we do weddings is normal here. The way that people do weddings in India, that's interesting and different. And that just like normalization of the dominant culture is a way of marginalizing other cultures. And so my encouragement for her was like, first of all, face this resistance that you have to being called racist. See if you can decouple that with being a good person and realize that like every single media source around us is reinforcing this idea of, of centering whiteness, constantly, constantly, constantly centering whiteness. I mean, you see the incredible response to the black Panther where blackness was centered in a very strong and powerful and not stereotypical like reinforcing stereotypical ideas in the black community was like, thank goodness, you know, like, I mean, I actually love going on YouTube. I'm like an emotional person. I love going on YouTube and seeing like emotional responses, like soldiers coming home or something, but also like seeing people, black people talk about the black Panther is a really beautiful thing. And it, it speaks to what is not present in our media a lot. I think it's really important work to, to see, like, to reorient, um, to this idea of being called a racist, to, to, to really work through that mentally and, and say to yourself, Oh, what is being said is that I just offended someone. And 
not that I'm a bad person. So if that's your orientation to being corrected, you're not immediately going to go into defensiveness and shame. If you're called racist or call out for saying something, you, what you're going to do is thank that person because most of us don't want to offend people. So it completely, if you can like really, when I got in touch with this, like, oh, wow, I need help. This is something that I don't, I don't do naturally. I don't, I don't know what other people's experiences are of whiteness and my words as a white person. So I need help. And so thank you. Like that, it just changes everything from a defensive conversation to like, oh, wow, thank you. Let me make sure I don't do that again. And it's like, I don't know why it has to be such a puffed up protective system around it. So that's a little bit of that taking correction, being open to it, realizing, hey, I'm not a, I'm not a bad person. I did maybe say something right here that I need to think about in the future and understand why it was offensive to somebody. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. As opposed to going, yeah. pushing back and shutting down. And yeah, like, why would you think that that was my intent? Like, why would you, you, why would you think so badly of me that you think that I would do that? That's where the conversation goes. And that, you know, what is lost is whatever the offensive remark was and saying sorry to someone for offending them. And so that's centering whiteness is going into that defensiveness instead of saying, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. Um, I saw someone post, I follow this woman Beck's life on media, on social media, on, on Instagram. And she said something in one of her notes recently that I was like, oh, that's so, that's so obvious. Like she, a lot of people kind of engage and get at it on, in her comments. And she's like, feel free to speak freely. White people feel free to speak freely. You're not supposed to not say anything. Just expect to get corrected. Mm. Like it's not that it's not about you. The political correctness movement of the 80s was like, everyone be silent. Everyone, if you don't use the right terms for people, that's not good. And but her, I was like, oh, that's so obvious, right? Just like speak, keep going, but just get ready to get corrected and, you know sort it out. So you can be, you can do this and in a way that's less offensive to people. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you guys talk about a raw conversation, you're giving each other the permission to maybe say something that the other person finds offensive to take correction, to understand that this isn't meant to be offensive. We're going to, we're going to work through this together as opposed to um, one or two people are in a room who do all the talking and um, the mm -hmm. rest of the people sit there quietly and listen, maybe because they don't have anything to say legitimately, but maybe because they're afraid they're going to get corrected or they're going to say something mm -hmm. wrong. And you're saying, don't, don't avoid a, these conversations out of fear of saying something wrong. Um, just have an open heart to being corrected and, you know, is that part of taking the personal risk? Is that when you guys say taking that personal risk is engaging in the conversation and being not only willing to be corrected, but to also correct somebody else? Yeah. You know, true education and true, um, true learning comes through vulnerability. Um, and, um, and because that's true courage when you're vulnerable, you know, and so our podcast, we're, we're courageous because we're so, vulnerable with each other, with our guests, with our audience. Um, I'm unapologetic. However, I'm very humble to the fact that I don't know everything. And I hope that I make a mistake through the process, learn from it, 
so that the next time I see a similar possibility to make the same mistake, I will not. Because that that is a practice. Life is a practice. Um, just like medicine, you know, you you don't get every diagnosis right the first time. However, if you are a great doctor, the, the first time you get it wrong, you learn from that because you you only learn through failure. You know, I, I'm not afraid to fail. I failed a lot, you know, and with this podcast, there's a high likelihood that I'm going to continue to fail just by who I am because I'm unapologetic. I'm curious. I'm, I'm me. And, and Emily allows me to do that. And this is why I'm learning so much about me as a, as a man, me as a black man, me as a, as a person in society of trying to change culture. And if you are trying to really change culture, you can't go into it thinking that you know everything about everything. Um, and I'm, I'm just willing to learn. And so being in that conversation all the time, opening the door and saying publicly, please correct me, is possibly the most courageous thing you can do. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a really mm-hmm. good point. It's always hard to be vulnerable, but actually standing up and saying, please correct me, is is taking it to a different level, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's also, you know, we have a disclaimer at the beginning of our episodes that is something along the lines of like we're we're having this conversation because we've built this relationship and we've invited each other to have this conversation. And um, because we don't want people to go out and think, because I think part of what humanize is doing is is normalizing these conversations about race, saying these, these things exist and it's fine and we can work through it. We can learn from it. Um, But it's not just about like going, talking to someone on the bus next to you, you know, like you can't just have these conversations. And it's um, I think the backdrop of this is just like, building stronger trust across your relationships. And, you know, if it's within your office, it can be people are getting vulnerable and some people are more or less vulnerable. And um, I think it's important to build a foundation of trust to have actual like authentic conversations. And so that's like a little, I feel like pre-work, but people can enter if they're used to having this kind of conversation, they can enter the conversation, you know, with more confidence knowing how to navigate things, but I'd say that's an important backdrop. So it's, it's interesting to hear how the two of you set it up so that you, even if you're leading the conversation and let's, let's face it, I'm sure you have a lot more um, experience leading these conversations. You've spent a lot more time thinking about these issues than some of the folks that are sometimes in that room, but you're making yourself vulnerable. You're asking people to give you um, correction and did you have to go through your own process or have you had an experience where uh, maybe early on, uh, you know, where because of that, maybe you unintentionally um, came across where maybe you were weaponizing it or, or somebody maybe felt like you were putting a mirror in their face in a way that was unfair or calling them out? I mean, there's one, there's one thing to give correction, but can you, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there a way that somebody could actually shut somebody down um, to the conversation because of the knowledge they have or the perspective that they have, or they have, a, they have a point of view on this that's stronger than the other people in the room. And so they kind of dominate the conversation. Maybe they're not even the instructor of, or the leader of the conversation. <laughs> you you're going into the allyship and accomplice world now, you know, and you're going, 
when you intellectualize the issue of race and culture and don't bring humanity into it, that is a problem. You know, everyone can read a book. You know, everyone could could get articles about um, culture and race and feel as though they have now become an authority on the issue. Poverty is big business. You know, individuals exploit it. Pain is, especially people of color, I, I did it. You like to monopolize pain and say, hey, white people don't talk, you don't have pain. That's ridiculous. You know, pain is relative. You know, you can't, you can't monopolize that. What you can do is have a process because I have a process and we had a process and we both ended up here together and we're still going, you know, we're far from perfect. So to me, the person in the room sitting down there intellectualizing and, and, and being on the soapbox about race and culture, whether black or white, is not, is not doing the conversation justice and not pushing the conversation towards the action step that have to be done um, and making it very performative, you know, having great sermons, having great speeches. But when individuals leave, they're going home to poverty. They're going home to, to, to gunshots in their community. They're going back or individuals in prison are watching it on television. My grandmother still doesn't have health care. My kid is still uh, thinking about um, not going to school tomorrow because you have to make a decision if um, <clears throat> whether to do certain things because they don't have option of food. You know, and so it's great to 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 know a problem exists, but it's all is different to, to, to again and again to take the action steps to create options for that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like that's it's when I encounter those people, I've at the and they were talking about a vague people, but I just kind of have a sense of what we're talking about. Um is that the conversation like how I facilitate that is to return to talking about myself and asking them questions about them because intellectualizing it is a is a defense, you know, it's a like let's not drop down into how this is real. Um and so if I if I talk to someone about my own experience, they can't tell me that that was wrong. You know, like this, you know, this is how I'm seeing white supremacy or white privilege in my life. They can't tell me that that's wrong. Um, and then just ask them to like reflect on an example from their life or you know, so I feel like the intellectualizing piece is tough. And that's that's part of why we named humanize humanize mm-hmm. is that we feel that humanizing this issue is the antidote for um, a lot of misdirections that can happen. And it also hooks into emotion. That's why we're focusing on story. Um, because as humans, the more human we get, the more empathic we are, the more we feel into someone else's experience, the more connected we feel to the cause that they're promoting. You know, the, what we're trying to do in season two now and onward is bring in different people from the community, amplify their cause as it relates to social justice um, and really focus in on the humanity of that as the antidote um, for what's going on. Okay. So I think you talked about um, pain, Courtney, or uh, struggle, but like most people, um, when they see oppression, it bothers them, especially if they're the one being oppressed, right? So is that a common, is that something that most humans can relate to? And, and then you just try to get to their empathy to see other people's, other people's experiences. Yeah. Um, because they probably, like you s- said, 
uh, Emily, they've probably at some point in their life been oppressed or felt oppressed. And so they could at least empathize with that emotion if, if you can get them to that place. Mm-hmm. I mean, a rich person has been oppressed. You know, oppressed is not a race. Oppressed is not a culture. Oppressed is just, by definition, um, feeling less than at a given moment. Poverty is just branded as people of color, but they're just by numbers, they're more white, poor people than they're people of color. It's just that the system has been put in place even to protect those poor white people. You know, you want to make it, America is branded as this place of, especially for immigrants, like you come to America, that change your life. You know, it's, it's the best place to be. And again, given what can happen, the opportunities that can happen here, America is a good place. However, it's a lot more difficult for a person of color to come here, as a, especially as an immigrant. Let's take off just black and white Americans. Let's say you're an immigrant of color versus a white immigrant. There, there again, there are diff- different um, societal structures in place that make it difficult for you to to escalate. You know what I mean? To to mm-hmm. get power. You know, okay, because I would rather have power and then the money will come versus if you have a lot of money and you're lacking power, you're still being oppressed, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And so that's, it goes back to when, when slaves were given freedom, but their political freedom wasn't, wasn't given to them. Are they really free? Right. You know, like you, you can't, <laughs> everything comes back to politics, mm-hmm. where you go to school, where you live, where how you get healthcare, because it's is, is, is under governing, uh, under a governing body. So if a person say on paper, okay, all black people are free, all people of color are free, but you can't vote. Oh, damn. Now we have Jim Crow. You know, now we have situations that make it so impossible. Now you 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 have nowhere to live. So now you're a free, you're a free homeless man. You're a free person with a lack of health care. You're a free person that can't read because you can't go to school because schools are segregated. And so freedom, true freedom, has to be accompanied with power for you to be liberated. That's the only way to do it. It can't come with money. All that feels good and it, it is great. But if you don't have power, and when I say power, I don't, want, I don't mean power to suppress and oppress anyone else. I'm talking about power to empower others. That's a truly powerful person. I want to walk into a room and see a marginalized group and create options. There you go. Now you can go to school. Now you can um, receive health care. Now you can, um, can, can live in a place where you're not dying, like you're, you're, you're not, you don't have lead in your water, you know? And so that is true power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great seg. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to add one thing as well. When, um, you know, we're talking about uh, creating empathy and connection. Um, it's, it's also not just about the pain that a marginalized population experiences. It's also about highlighting the full spectrum of their humanity and celebrating the joys and accomplishments. And I think it's really important to just, you know, dehumanization holds a system in place and to see that in full entirety of the human is really important. That's why, you know, we do a lot of laughing and joking around and hearing backstories. You know, we had a guest who was, we're just like, how are you coping with all the stress of this? And, you know, she's telling us her, you know, the ways that 
she's making sure she's, she's taking care of herself. It's um, <clears throat> we're not just trying to highlight pain. We're trying to highlight the full spectrum of humanity that, um, you know, is not necessarily covered in, in day-to-day -day life. And especially, you know, like, you know, white people up here in Boulder don't have a lot of exposure to people of color. Like there's just a very a small, but important population up here. Um, but we want, we want people to like, be like, oh, right. We, we were taught to just think of oppressed populations this way, or this, or this, we just want to, you know, highlight the, the full humanity of all of our guests and each other. So Courtney, the, the, you were talking about power, which is a good segue to the next question, um, which is, I was listening to On the Tightrope podcast with Dr. Cornell West and Professor, Professor Tricia Rose, and they were interviewing Charles Blow, who's an author, New York Times columnist. Um, and he's recently written a book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And uh, I, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I've listened to a lot of his interviews about the book. And his part of his um, argument is that um, when, the black, when blacks left the South during the Great Migration, um, many states in the South had a high um, percentage of black population. And today, had that Great Migration not happened, he believes seven or eight states in the South would be um, majority black. And Georgia is a good example right now of where the the, the black voters, 33% of the voters who elected Warnock and uh, um, I'm forgetting the other uh, senator's name, but were the majority of voters that put the senators into office. And anyway, he's talking about what would it look like if seven states had 14 senators that were in a majority black population and all the electoral college votes that would be more than New York and in California. So he's really talking about political power and having the ability to make decisions around healthcare and education and the types of things that you were talking about. But he also, uh, in that interview, said something that we were talking about today that um, I just wanted the two of you to react to, kind of like you're on your own podcast. Um, Charles Blow said, what does power look like or what does black political power look like? What does it look like when you address issues of black oppression? The only reason that there is oppression in America is because America says we want it. This idea that we need to have the hard conversation about race is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because it's not actually a hard conversation at all. It is as simple as human beings are human beings, regardless of what their complexion or whatever their facial features or hair textures are. They're human beings and all of them should be treated equally. And we should all set about to do that and erase all the things that create inequities or hierarchies among the communities. It's not that hard of a conversation. We make it hard because we want to make people feel less uncomfortable with the fact that they have participated in the oppression. And I, I just thought setting up this conversation with you guys today that this, this quote might encapsulate a lot of what we've talked about. I feel like it has. So just would you two react to this? Like if you're on your own podcast today? <laughs> yeah. Usually I bring it out. Yo, 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 what's up? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> Let's get it. We having a hard conversation today, folks, about, um, <laughs> about power you know, and why it is such a hard conversation. Emily, uh, I love this. You know, I'm going to to start it off and I know you're going to bring your brilliance into it. I I feel as though Dr. Cornell was, he said some, some great points, but it goes back to me to think about safety. 
Now, if you're benefiting from a system of oppression, you're safe. You're cool. You're chilling. Like, why would you change that? I'm not going to have a conversation about something that's going to affect me negatively or my family. That's the norm. It's not a bad thing to, to, to desire safety for those you love in your immediate circle. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually viewed as a crazy thing to view everyone as, as um, individuals deserving of, of, of power. However, we need to get to a place as a collective, as, as, as a society where this is just my crazy opinion, you know, that we feel as though if my neighbor is being oppressed, I can't sleep at night. I got to mm-hmm. figure it out because like King said, we inextricably um, woven in. And so people love to quote speakers. And if, again, it feels good to hear a great speech. I have a dream. You in DC, you feeling good, sun shining. But then when you go back home and your neighbor ain't got the lights on, you're like, well, <laughs> sucks for him. I got me and my family chilling over here. We good, you know? And, and that, that is fucked up. That is some shit that pisses me off. Like that is the hip. That's so hypocritical, you know, to me, to me, again, this is my crazy opinion. And so I feel as though we all should use any type of power that we have to empower someone else to be um, safe as well. Mm -hmm. Do you, Courtney, do you feel like, do you feel like the conversations that we have are hard conversations about race? I mean, I kind of, first of all, I think that this is a hysterical call out. <laughs> like reading that, I watched the YouTube clip. Like I thought it was funny. I was like, oh yeah, totally, totally. He just called out something mm-hmm. that's really, really poignant. Um, and I think that probably both of us have a different perspective on what makes this conversation a conversation that needs a container? Like I was talking about, like to have some trust that, so I'm curious to hear your perspective. Do you feel like the conversations that we're having are hard conversations? (laughs) I don't know like how to answer that because what is hard? (laughs) I feel as right. right. If you live with your whole life, having hard conversations and using your thoughts and your words to, to, to live and survive, that hard because as humans we are built to adapt you know and so it's not a hard conversation for me it's a needed one and i'm ready and i'm up for the challenge of having the uncomfortable situations because as you know in 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 uncomfortable situations i'm like hey i fucked up my bad what's what's now what's next you know or Mm -hmm. it is they go courtney doing this thing again so I don't, I don't <laughs> mind being uncomfortable in a situation because I know uh-huh. the end result is freedom. What is the mission uh-huh. for us to do this? So it's less about me, but always been about why am I doing this shit? Oh, okay, to survive. Okay, cool. I'm doing anything. Whatever right. it takes. Oh, what am I doing this? To get out of this car because I'm homeless? Yeah. All right, cool. I'm doing it. I got to graduate mm-hmm. med school. Okay. Let me stay up all night. So I, I've always had to to put myself in the back seat and think about ways to to do what I got to do aside from an emotional type of thing. Because I I try not to make emotional decisions. I try to make decisions that are going to have the end result that I'm looking for. If I say I want to make a million dollars, 
it's not now you're like, okay, cool. You can't be comfortable. What are we going to do? So if you have a script to make a million dollars, I'm ah, yo, let's do it. Let's do it. So that's, it's not an uncomfortable situation. It's one needs to have. So it, the comfort comes in the discomfort, if that's making sense for me. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. uncomfortable to sit comfortably knowing that all I have to do is be uncomfortable right now for the legacy of comfort. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's how my brain is set up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in our, you know, our introduction, we say that we're here to, to address the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, which we think are culture, ego and power. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the pieces that make it a kind of thorny, thorny field to walk through because ego is always present. Power is always present. And I imagine that it's different for you and me. The discomfort is we're, we're like the vulnerability has uh, different manifestations. You know, like I would say, I would say that why it's hard um is because it's really vulnerable and because it's public <laughs> and so it's public accountability um i often have episode hangovers where i'm like oh god i said that i said that like courtney am i gonna be okay <laughs> um and so i think it's the ego that makes it hard it's also um yeah like courtney said like it's hard to have a a conversation where it's easier not to have the conversation. Like it's easy. It's Mm -hmm. easy as a white person. It's easy for me to get distracted by the kajillion other things that are going on in my life. Um, but (laughs) easy has never done much for (laughs) disrupting, disrupting the status quo, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, sad to face the complicitness, you know, that I've been a part of it's hard emotionally to then admit it and then grapple with it. But like Courtney was saying, the thing that draws you through is like the hope of the other side, the um, continued groundedness and truth and humanity. And the, it's just the desire for everyone to feel like a strong, like the core basic, you know, the, the, dignity to, you know, like dignity for all people and access. Um, so yeah, I, in response to him, I would say, sadly, yes, it is hard and it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be living there. And let's hope that we get to a place where it's not so hard. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you for that. And we were going to do a lightning round about your podcast, but I think Time is, is, is cutting short. And so I do want to let the audience know that you've started season two. You've mentioned that uh, season one had eight episodes. Uh, the titles of those episodes, but number one was the denial of racism. Then the question of justice, then our stories is racism normalized riots and racism, diagnosing issues and addressing fear. BIPOC and allies will never dismantle white supremacy and looking back and what's to come. So those are the eight that we were going to do a lightning round on, but I want to respect both of your time and try to get you out of here as close to this as we can. Now, the, what is, you know, I asked the question, what are your top three takeaways for taking action for the uh, Beyond the Collab Bible audience? Or maybe you have one big takeaway that you want to do, and I'll leave it to both of you to decide if you have three or one. 
And how about you first, Emily? Um, like the takeaway, like think about this when you're leaving this episode. Yeah. Like ta- what's, what's a takeaway that you can maybe use to take action as a person who, who's listening. I would say, um, you know, like a subtle internal one, this is speaking probably to the white folks who are listening is to just really tune into that moment of discomfort. When you realize that you're starting to have a conversation that involves race, like where in your body is it? Like, you know, I feel it in my, my chest and tune into that discomfort and just know that that is part of transformation. Don't run away from it. Cause if we always run away from that feeling, we're not going to get to whatever is on the other side of this system of oppression or this very conversation. Um, if people are honest in conversations, it leads to a strengthening that vulnerability leads to a strengthening in the relationship. And so, yeah, just, you know, Courtney said before, like, if you have a baby and you know, it's your own baby and you go through childbirth, it's pretty uncomfortable, but you need to go through that to get to the creation of something new. Um, so that would be my encouragement. All right. But you, Courtney. In order for us to really address poverty and oppression and a lack of, we have to first admit that, that a problem exists via a conversation, an internal conversation or one with others and being very strong to stand alone in your culture, in your society, in your community. And just knowing that if a lot of times people have the same qualms and the same issues there and they just need one person and that person could be you to stand strong and you could be a leader in that instance towards change. You know, my whole thing is I don't want to be the only leader. I want to be a leader that sparks others so that we can walk together, black, white, green, and yellow. You know, like um, we just have to, to, to make sure that liberation is the mission and we can't fail. Freedom is the mission. We can't fail. You know, and so that's where that that's where I would leave. Let's take action that makes sense for everyone and not for a collective. Because slavery happened. All right, it's done. What's next? What are we gonna do about that now? Are we gonna be upset and mad and just continue to say why people are the problem? Or are we gonna say this happened? It was egregious. What now? And that's hope as the, the, the fertilizer and, and, and the water is and, and, and everything that's needed for us to grow is, um, is everyone towards this mission of hope. Everyone is needed, not just one, not just a few. So that's what I would leave with. All right. Thanks. And I usually like to do the set of questions that getting to know the guests, but I know we are both running short, but I was wondering if you just had time for the last one, which mm-hmm. is what is something you believed for a long time? that you later found to be untrue? <laughs> I, can, I, I, would, I would say something I believed about myself was that I was a little like even, even keeled uh, and very resilient and COVID having a three and five-year-old has shown me that's not necessarily true. <laughs> It's been very humbling. Um, yeah, my self-image is kind of uh, withering like a balloon that's been popped. Um, so it's good. 
again, moving more towards truth and humanity, but uh, I had a concept of myself that's kind of disintegrating. <laughs> um, wow. Whew. I always felt like I would live forever. Um, and the other day, I almost broke my knee walking up the step. And I was like, dang. <laughs> Courtney, Courtney. Hold on. <laughs> Not me. So that, that is, that reality is like, oh, I got some stuff to do before I, I keel over here. So I looked at my dog. Oh, I was like, yeah, we got to get to work. And that was a long night. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I always thought, yo, I, I'm immortal, man. I'm going to live ever. Until today's a small brother. No, you got some stuff to do. Get to work. So that is it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, um, I, hopefully we can, you know, come back together sometime in the future and talk about the progress with your podcast and the work you're doing. But I want to thank both of you for taking the time today to meet with me and for the audience of Beyond the Collabo Babble to, to have this conversation. And uh, just thank you so much. I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. And um, I'll be in touch with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Peace. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collabo Battle. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, 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 learn, take action.